Turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. We're not going to get very far. I might talk a long time, but we're not going to get very far. Um, this morning in the book of Daniel, we looked at a couple of verses last week. I'm just going to review those this morning and tack on five and see how we do, okay? So Daniel, chapter 1, uh, starting in verse... Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, and then I want to read down through verse 7. If you'd stand in honor of God's word, uh, we'll look at the book of Daniel. God's word says this, And in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Uh, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, uh, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, or uh, uh, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of, of food um, that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were uh, to be educated for three years And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. God, we ask for your blessing as we study your word now. Uh, God, help us to be encouraged and strengthened for the week ahead as we hear from you. God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we uh, look at this this morning, uh, I'm just going to talk about really some things about Nebuchadnezzar and things about Daniel. And we're just going to kind of go through those two, two men um, and talk about them in regards. So if you remember last week, if you were here, I said that one of the things that we're going to learn is about leadership. And leadership's a big deal. All of us lead in some way, either by example uh, to our peers and those who are even older. We have people looking up to us. Uh, we're parents. Uh, we're spouses. Uh, we have roles in our community, uh, and even greater than that, but leaders. And we're going to see uh, the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar and really how D- Daniel was equipped for leadership uh, for the days ahead. First Nebuchadnezzar, it says, In the uh, third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. Uh, that that first part, talking about Jehoiakim, it's really not about Jehoiakim, it's about Nebuchadnezzar. It's a time stamp. And if you work out the math and it's you know a little fuzzy at points, it's 605 BC. Don't remember that. It doesn't matter. But it's 605 BC. I just was showing off that I looked it up. That's all I'm saying there. 605 BC. 
There's a timestamp. Many of you have a camera that does that, right? You know, it tells what date it is so you know where we are. This is showing us where we are in the story of really the southern kingdom, Judah, or God's people, the Israelites. This is what it's showing us. 605 B.C., Jehoiakim is coming, but Nebuchadnezzar comes. And, and the point is that Jehoiakim, uh, he wasn't that great of a king. He allowed people to remain in sin and failure as God's people. And it was at that time that Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem. Uh, it says of Nebuchadnezzar that he was the king of Babylon. You know about kings? You know about kings? You know uh, what kings think of themselves? This king of Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, there, he, he was a famous one, especially so this was really the beginning of his career as king. Uh, in fact, he was probably, you know, marking it somewhere around there that he was actually not king, that he was a general, if you will. He was down near Egypt and he was conquering areas because that's what kings do. They get more for themselves. They become more powerful. That's what they desire. And Nebuchadnezzar was that. He was, In fact, he was known as a conquering king, a strategic military might, and a great builder in his, in his latter life. So this is Nebuchadnezzar. And when we say, say king, I think it's hard for us, uh, the United States, one of the things that we cherish so much about the United States is when somebody says president, immediately go, well, he's not that big of a deal. He's just like us. You know, he's just a citizen, too. I could grow up to be president, too. I think I'm a little late on my career, by the way. I don't think I have the time to gain the popularity. But if you'd, if you'd be part of my staff and, you know, my, my team, maybe we could make signs or something, right? Uh, but the idea that we look at our president and we immediately say, he's just like us. He's just like us. He can be arrested. In fact, that's been one of the great things of the last, you know, three or four administrations, right? They, you know... When it comes election time, we say, lock him up, lock, you know, that we always say they can be arrested too, you know, if they've done things that we, we think that we're just like them, even though they're in charge. This was not true of the kings of the Bible times. It's not that uh, they, they should have thought themselves just common people. They just didn't. Uh, they thought of themselves as in charge, that they, everyone was their subjects, Right. Uh, in fact, uh, most of them thought that the reason that they had people in their kingdom was so that they would serve them. Uh, and the idea of getting more of them was to just have more servants for you. And, and it wasn't just that they thought of themselves as king, but most of them thought of themselves as deity, that they were God to these people. And so as um, we look at this, we realize to some degree, Nebuchadnezzar did not think of himself as just king, but he thought of himself as great and above his people. Above. This was Nebuchadnezzar. We see that what, what he did was he besieged the city. And like I said before, it was, and, and as I picture it, as I read about this, Nebuchadnezzar probably didn't think much of Jerusalem. He didn't like look at it as anything special. Uh, he had been to other cities and territories and, and besieged them and conquered them. And so it was almost as if I read it, it was kind of on his way home. 
hey, let's get this one on our way home here. Let's go through Jerusalem and see what we could do there. And they were gathering. If you, if you look at a, a map, um, if you know where Israel is in Jerusalem, uh, that's to the west. To the east is Babylon. It's Iran, Iraq, and some of those other smaller countries. It's that portion. And, and what they were doing was just expanding their territory towards the west and, and south as well. And this is the desire of Nebuchadnezzar is to take on more land, more people. It's important that we remember, and I made a big deal of this this week, and I think it's really the backdrop as we look at uh, what Daniel has done and what he will do in the chapters ahead. We see that it it says, if you look down at verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, meaning the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. That's a tough transaction for us. Because if you think about Jehoiakim, he was... Uh, the king of God's people. Uh, if, even as we looked last week, it was the idea that uh, the line of Christ would go through Jerusalem. It would go through the line of Judah, God's people. And so you look at that and you say, well, they're God's people. And so when you're the people of God, you have a special relationship. He protects, he guides, he takes care of you. But it says this, that God the God of Israel, God of these, these ones who lived in Jerusalem, handed them over to the wicked king, the evil king, Nebuchadnezzar. Hard to imagine. But I want you to get it because it's super important. It, it makes the, the story more impactful when we remember that, uh, when we remember what Daniel and his friends would do in the chapters ahead. Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city, conquered the city. But know this, that the Lord gave them into his hand. And I just want to stop here and just make a point. Um, why did Nebuchadnezzar win? Like, like I think that that's an uh, important thing. And, and many times we go, oh, because he won against the other guys too. He was, he was successful in Egypt, so he was really good at war. And so he did well over there, and this was just, they weren't ready for him. And so they lost, because Nebuchadnezzar was so great. I want to say, Nebuchadnezzar was great at war. But it says that the Lord gave them. You know, and I, I want to encourage you as you're young. Some of you aren't young. You can think back to the days when you were young. And even for the days ahead. It's great to make plans. It's great to be smart about those plans. It's good to make goals and uh, the idea of uh, thinking and gaining knowledge and listening to people who are smart so you can be smart too. But I want to ask you a question. Would you rather be smart or, or would you rather see the blessing of God in your life? The blessing of God. I want to tell you that it's not about being stupid and being blessed. It's the idea that you trust the outcome of your efforts to the blessing of God, to the will of God, to his plan working out in your life. I think it's important to remember that. Sometimes you're plotting and planning your strategies and your good thoughts are not God's plans. And so we can excitedly take a day that we we didn't sign up for. 
and know that it's his blessing. It's his plan, and we can be blessed in the midst of his plan as we succumb. And we're going to see that more in uh, Daniel. Anyways, the Lord uh, gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into, the ha- into his hand. And it says this too, that some of the vessels of the house of God were taken. Now, why did they take the vessels of the house of God? Well, it was probably valuable. It was probably valuable. As you look back, you see Solomon had made some of these, and Solomon's temple as part of that. They made these valuable uh, different things. It doesn't say which vessels they took, but it was probably some decorations, but also some pots and different things that would have been there to be used in the worship of God. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar went into the house of God, the temple. He says, I'll take this, I'll take this, I'll take this. Because it looks nice, and it's kind of a souvenir that we beat Jerusalem. We beat Jerusalem. He goes on uh, to say one other thing about that. He's skipping over, uh, and he he brought them to the land of uh, Shinar. We'll get back to that. Uh, To the house of his God. His God, and it says it twice, his God. Meaning this, that what Nebuchadnezzar thought of God and himself being God and whatever, whatever he thought about what was going on, he was saying, the God of the people of Jerusalem, we beat him. We beat him. It's a reminder of our success. And, and they thought their God was so great, they worshiped him in their temple, but we went into that place and we took a few souvenirs. And that God didn't do anything. They thought he had won. He thought it, it was a mocking. It was, it was the idea that he was showing the world and their God that he and his God was better. Okay? And so as you think about that, what a... What a um, what a loss, right? What, what an idea that we are not the victors. We don't seem like the victors in this as God's people. The land of Shinar, um, it's just another name for Babylon. But it highlighted something important. It, it highlighted its history, the land of Babylon, land of Shinar. It highlighted that the history of the land had been hostile to the faith of the true God of Israel been hostile. And, and, and I think we understand that different cities and places um, have um, thoughts behind them. Just when you say them, if I would say Moscow, most of you would think of Red Square. You'd think of a symbol of communism. You'd think of maybe Stalin and some of the, uh, the leaders after that. And you'd think of you know, world power. You'd think of really an enemy of uh, who we are here in the United States, you think of that as you think of Moscow. Well, maybe you think of China. You'd say, ooh, you know, it's been a rough week as we think about China, right? Uh, Follow the news and you wonder what the future is there. It represents something. Um, Las Vegas represents something to you. You think some thoughts when you think of Las Vegas, right? Uh, Berkeley. Oildale, right? It's got a reputation. And as you think about this, you think that that's what they would have thought. Of. And, and he's saying he brought the people, but really the, the vessels, he brought them to the land of Shinar that wasn't good for the people of God. 
Well, let's turn to Daniel. The, uh, you know, the, I'm sorry, let's talk about Ashpenaz real quick. Ashpenaz, uh, as we look at the passage, we don't know a whole lot about him, and that's okay. Um, he's a minor player, but know this, that uh, it says in um, verse 3, it says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the key, chief eunuch, uh, to bring some of the people of Israel. Okay, bring some people. And so if you picture uh, Nebuchadnezzar, his armies, Ashpenaz is probably with them, and or maybe not, maybe he went back, we don't know. But we think it's right around this first time, this 605 BC, that he says, go bring some people with you. And it wasn't just the vessels that were going to be the souvenirs, we're going to get some people out of this too. And we're going to bring some people back with us uh, to Babylon, to the land of Shinar, the, the idea that they will leave their home and they will come with us. And Ashpenaz was the one that was to do this. He was, it says the eunuch, and that term has a lot of implications, but really it's the idea that um, he was in charge of those who were in the palace to serve the king. And so if you think about him, you think about him as a middle manager. He has to receive from Nebuchadnezzar what he wants and then implement it with those uh, he is called over the charge, okay? And so uh, that's what we get. Nebuchadnezzar has this man in his charge. Now we turn to Daniel. And, you know, it starts out, bring some people. Bring some people. Well, who are you going to bring? I want to tell you that uh, this was typical of conquering nations or conquering cities, going to other cities, that they would take what they wanted, uh, that which was valuable, and they would grab people, grab people to now, uh, for various reasons, but to populate and to use as slaves and to enhance what they were doing in their land, in their cities. There were three groups that came from Jerusalem, the first one being Daniel and his friends, uh, 605-ish. And then um, in 597, there was a, it marked another 10,000 people came. And then once again, 11 years after that, um, it says really from the outer areas, the province of Babylon. Uh, you, <laughs> this isn't that funny, but I'm going to say it anyways. Um, I, I always think it's funny when we have talked about in our last year, who's an essential worker? And uh, I don't know if you felt offended that uh, you, some of you, your job, I don't feel that offended. I was considered unessential either, you know. I uh, wasn't someone, and, and you feel like, man, I guess I'm not really important or in my community or what's going on here in America. I want to tell you, uh, if you were still there after the third uh, group that went into exile in Babylon, man, your self-esteem went way down uh, because you realized that the king came three times and he was rounding up people that seemed valuable and you got left three times. Okay, so anyways, I knew that wasn't that funny, but I thought it was funny to me. I have a warped sense of humor. I'm sorry. Um, pastors, dads, dad pastors, uh, even worse. Anyways, um, uh, as we go on, this is what happened. They were taking these ones into exile, and Daniel and his friends that we're going to look at here in a moment were part of that first group. I don't believe that was all of them, but it was least, at least those four. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about them. If we, we don't get a, a really a good picture of how old they were, 
But I want to tell you something that may be kind of sobering to you. Um, we know that uh, there's a time in the end of the book of um, Daniel says he's 80. I think he says he's 80. And so we can work our way back. But we know that he was a young man, young man. And we realize that the time where young men were considered young men, but also trained, trained this three years, you know, kind of maybe you picture in your mind college or something like that. But I want to tell you that I'm, I'm convinced as I studied that he was probably around 15, probably around 15, could be as low as 13, but probably not past 16. Okay. And what I want to, what has sobered me this week as I thought of this is uh, parents and grandparents, do you know anybody who's 13 to 16? I do. I have a daughter who's 15, uh, a, a nephew that's 14. And, you know, what that is, it's seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th grade. It's right in there. Uh, those of you who are older parents, um, and maybe you've sent your kids away, you've dropped them off at school, and they go to college, and there's that day where you take them up there, and uh, you drop them off, and you see the campus, and you see other students, and you go, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? This doesn't make it all that much sense, and depending on how comfortable you are with the school, and you know, there's a, a bit more anxiousness to that, and you go, are they ready? Are they ready? You moms go in uh, to the, the dorm room and you, you make the bed and you explain these sheets here. Now, these sheets need to be washed every once in a while, periodically. And periodically means different things to different people, how often those would be. be. But you get this picture as, as parents, as you drive away, you go, will they be able to make it? Are they old enough for this? Am I ready for this? Are they ready for this? Will they be able to handle the challenges that come for the days ahead? I want to tell you that I believe, if I understand correctly, that Daniel and his friends were 13 to 16. And as you picture your children or your grandchildren or people in this church, to picture Daniel and his friends starting out in this journey in captivity at that age. You can ask the question, will they be able to make it? We know some things about these young men, um, that why they were chosen. And it, it goes on, it describes them like this in verse 4. It says, these are the ones that you're supposed to pick. Actually, let's go back in the middle of verse 3. It says, to bring some people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, the upper class or the ones in power. And he says, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding learning and competent to stand in the king's palace. As you look at this, he, he, he brings them out and he says, now these are the best and, and probably part of the royal family and the nobility is, is almost a hostage sort of thing. If you think about that, um, if, if the folks of Jerusalem, if they would regroup after their, their kids have been taken and they say, oh, we're, we're, we're loaded now. We got, we got our armies together. We got a plan. We, we, you know, we're going to go take that city. We're going to go to the land of Babylon. We're gonna, but 
And the idea is we're going to destroy their city. I say, well, wait a minute. Our sons are there. Got to be careful. It's a hostage situation. He says, we've conquered you. You, We're going to leave, but we're going to take your best. We're going to take your very best. This was part of the thinking behind taking uh, these from the royal family and the nobility. And chances are, as we look beyond, they're probably going to rule over their family as an arm of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, youths without blemish. It's the idea that they are uh, physically good and even of good appearance. It's not just that uh, they're good looking as well as healthy. Skillful in all wisdom. And then he goes on to talk about really their capacity to learn. Uh, There's different ways to get ahead in education. There's the hard worker, the people that are just crazy. They can't get less than 100. And so they study hours upon hours and stress themselves out. Uh, we have some here in our presence. I won't point, point any of them out. But they just have to get it. They're hard workers. That's part of it. But not just hard workers. There's other people who it comes quickly to them and naturally. And they don't necessarily work hard, but they also do well. It's not just one of these. It's both. But it's also the one who's able to make wise choices and to be able to uh, assemble all the thoughts and really apply it. And he's saying, these are the ones that have it all that we are looking for to take back to Babylon with us. It was the best. It was the best. And they were taken back for a purpose. The purpose was uh, the purposes of Nebuchadnezzar. It says in, in the middle of verse 4, it says, incompetent to stand in the king's palace, meaning they would be ready and, and able to be a a blessing or a servant to the king. That was the purpose of bringing these ones, not just as a hostage, not just as a souvenir of my time in Jerusalem. I took some young men with me, but that he was doing this and he would say, these had a purpose to them that they were going to serve him in the king's palace. It says also um, that as a, part of their learning, what they were going to learn and what they were going to be able to teach and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Uh, That's a little bit different. You'd you'd assume that it would say the Babylonians, but as they, um, the Babylonians, they spoke Babylonian, but they, uh, they studied the Chaldeans, which was kind of their ancestors. And much of their literature was uh, the Chaldean literature that would have been passed down. And so that's what they were going to know and taught and be part of their history as they moved forward as people who lived in captivity. It's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar, his desire for Daniel and his friends and probably the other captives as well in time, was that, that they would assimilate and And especially these ones who had it all, they were the ones that were going to be equipped to be servants in the palace. But their equipping that went on before actually equipped them to serve God in captivity. There was a desire, we'll get back to this, but Nebuchadnezzar had a plan for them, but God also had a plan that was greater for them. As you look at these young men, they were hot prospects. They were people that uh, had potential to do great things. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar took them. I want to say this. 
uh, and I don't know a whole lot about this in the sense from the text, but I do know a little. These men, these four at least, had hopeful and diligent parents. Hopeful and diligent parents. And I say hopeful because of their names. Because of their names. They were names, and I won't go through them, but they were names that were Hebrew names that uh, connected with that they hoped that great stuff would come out of their life. Just because, by the way, when you have a baby um, and you name them, you really ain't done nothing yet, you know? It's all hope, right, at that point? You know, I hope that, you know. Uh, and, and sometimes names are connected with that hope that you have for the kid. You can imagine um, if I named one of my sons Pinto. And I could go two ways on this, you know, like my favorite way to go, but some of you don't know about this, is if I would say, yeah, I really, you know, when I, when I first learned to drive, there's this car, the Pinto. It was awesome looking, you know, and I just always wanted to have a Pinto. And so as I think about my son, who I wish great things for him, I'm going to name him Pinto. If you don't know what a Pinto looks like, you should look it up. Because if you were named after the Pinto, your parents didn't have big dreams for you. I just want to tell you that. Or you could say something like, I just like Pinto beans. And so I thought it was a good idea to name my kid Pinto. Um, you, you realize that names have a connection. And at least at that day where they had these sons, they connected their son's name in hope that something good would come out of this young man's life. So he, they, they had Hebrew names that, that spoke of God's goodness and hope for the future. The second uh, thing that I want to tell you is this, and this is where it gets a little dicey. Uh, 13 to 16-year-olds, right? And you look at what happens, and we'll get in this the weeks to come. You look at what happens in their lives, and somehow they were ready they were ready to stand up to the king of Babylon. That, that seems crazy to me. When I, when I think of, you know, really the, the age 15 stands out in my mind. We don't trust 15-year-olds with much. We say they're not ready to drive a car by themselves. And in reality, they're probably not ready to drive a car at 16 either. But we go, oh, we just got to get them along here, right? You know, it's, it's a learning process, you know. And you think about what you would trust a 15-year-old with. And as moms and dads go, ah, not ready yet, not ready yet, you're not ready. And somehow, somehow, these parents had done something and somehow raised them as men that would be able to stand up to the king of Babylon as 15-year-olds. 13, 16, whatever it was. After part of their education, those three years, 19, somehow they were ready to, to honor God in captivity apart from their parents. They were ready to honor the Lord. And, you, you know, I, I, I find that fascinating. Uh, there's been a... Um, you know, even in the last year, I've heard it over and over again. Don't send your kids to college. Don't send them to college. Those godless places you turn out to be communist atheists after they come out of those places. Yeah, it might. 
But the question is, are they ready? Are they ready? Are they ready to go? Are they ready for the pressures of uh, conforming? Are they ready for those things? And somehow, some way, these young men were. We'll get back to that. I think there's more to that story. Um, but I, I find that fascinating. That somehow they're ready. And I, I equate that to somehow diligent parents. Parents that cherished the idea, hopeful at that day one that said, we're going to name him, hoping that something will good come out of their life that re- reflects God. And then they do things between now and then that would both develop their character, their convictions, and, and, and this idea that, that they would know what is right being pressured to do that which is wrong. Somehow that those parents must have done something. Their names and then their, somehow their training or life with, that they have been raised to was somehow developed into later success. I want to say this before I go on. It wasn't just, it wasn't just their parents. It was a work of God. I, I want to tell you this, that uh, your kids are not ready to be pressured with those things. They don't have enough resources But if they have a relationship with God, they do have enough resources. God's strength will be shown in their life. It wasn't that Daniel was complete and he goes, man, I could stand up to anybody. I'll even take the the leader of the, I want to say free world, but there really wasn't a free world. So it was the, uh, I don't know what kind of world you would call it. But I'm able to stand up against that. He, He didn't say that. He knew that God would be enough and God gave him the strength in that situation of captivity. Uh, he gave them the strength for the day that they had. So it was a picture of God's blessing to them, but also the hope of the parents, the diligence that they had put in prior. It says that they got a special diet, and I, I find that interesting. I wonder what it was like. We don't have a description. I picture it to be an amazing buffet. Uh, you know, where uh, some of you go, well, you know, when at our house when we have a barbecue, you know, we get our meat at Costco or Albertsons, and sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's not, but, but this was like at the king's table. This was the Wagyu stuff, you know, the fancy steaks that came that only the king could afford. And I was able, as God's, or as the king's guest and the one that he was trained, we got to eat off the king's table, it was probably very good food. It was special. It, it describes the wine. And, you know, I'm not a wine drinker, but, a, you know, what is it? The four buck chuck or something like that. It wasn't something they got at Trader Joe's. It was the expensive stuff. It, it, was, it was the the good stuff. And, and, and this picture is now because of their connection in Babylon, because of their being as part of this training program for Nebuchadnezzar, they were allowed and even required these delicacies. They had a place. And along with this place, this special diet, they had special treatment or special training. Um, As we see in verses uh, 5, it says, The king assigned them these daily portions of food, and they ate ate and, and the wine that they drank. They were educated for three years And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. 
All this was for the king, this special treatment. And I want to tell you that um, it wasn't necessarily a bad life that they had. Uh, In our day and age, it would be a scholarship, a full-ride scholarship, what they got. I realize it was captivity. I realize mom cried that day. I realize they were lonely for home. But once they got there and even realized that they were captives, they said, boy, this is amazing. We have it all here. Well, I want to... I've. Two lists of three things, okay? I usually only have one list of three things, but now I have two for three, okay? Let's first of all talk about Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel. What did Nebuchadnezzar do to Daniel or for Daniel or for all four of them, okay? I want to get there. And I want you to think about Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king who doesn't care about the true God of Israel. He doesn't care about him at all. He has a plan for Daniel's life. Okay, and I want to tell you, this world, unbelieving people, our enemy, the devil, has a plan for our lives as well. Let's just think about this. What was Nebuchadnezzar, what was his desire for Daniel? The first thing, if he would have said, Daniel, what is it? I want to conquer you. I came to Jerusalem to conquer Jerusalem. I want you to be my subject, right? I want to be above you. So I came to Jerusalem to make you my subject. I want to tell you that in our world today, there's this threat to us as God's people that it might be a person or it might be the culture, might be our government, might be... Even above that, our enemy himself, Satan. He desires to conquer us. He desires to conquer us. Which brings us to number two. And this was true of Nebuchadnezzar. That that Nebuchadnezzar, as he looked upon Daniel and his friends, he would say, "Uh, Daniel, if I'm honest with you, I want to use you. I want to use you. I see you and I think, I could use him. King needs people to do things. And like, I got big plans for you, uh, Daniel. Like, I, I'm going to train you and I'm going to make you something special. And then you'll serve me with this new knowledge that you have. Maybe even in your own people. Maybe you'll be over them. Uh, but as my arm in that place of Jerusalem and Judah. And lastly, and this one seems not that big of a deal uh, uh, if you don't think about it. The, the third thing that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do to Daniel was, he says, I want to train you. I want to train you. I want to take you as a young man. Eventually, there was probably young women as well, and it was the same thing. It was like, I want to take you as a young man, a young woman. I want to take you, and I want to train you. And what what he's saying there by this three-year scholarship that he gave him, good food, bunch of education. He says, I don't want you to be like you are right now. I want to retrain you. And what I want to do is I want to take all that Hebrew God stuff that you, you've learned and, you know, I want to take it, I want to I remove all that 
And I want to replace with our history, with our pagan history, with our different gods and how you would worship me and how you, this is what I want to give you. I want to, I want to train you. I want to retrain you. I want to tell you that's our enemy's desire for us too. He wants to conquer us. He wants to use us. And he wants to train us to be different than what God has to say. Which brings me to my second, third list. Three lists. Anyways. Points to remember today. Uh, I went over these and I just want to keep us on track here in our study. First one, God's plan doesn't always look right to you. I want to tell you that the the captivity itself, man, it can't look right to us, can it? It just, it, it's hard for us. And I, I hope I've, I've, I've pushed you parents and mom, moms here today, grandparents, that the picture of 13 to 16-year-olds taken off into captivity, you wouldn't be all right with it. it it's an amazing, amazing picture. And, and I want to tell you, I want to prepare you for this life, that there are going to be days and seasons, probably years, that don't look right. And you can't make sense of them. You can't do the math on them. But if you acknowledge that God was on his throne today, that somehow he's working out his plan. I know the end. Look into the, I'm looking to the skies. I'm wondering when we're going home we can acknowledge that even if it doesn't look right to me, that, that I can acknowledge that it's okay. It's okay for it not look, looking right to me. My second uh, encouragement for you, things to remember today, is that teens can be ready. Teens can be ready. I think that's super important for us to remember. I think that most of the time we look at uh, those who are young, especially teenagers, and we go, just put them in a cage somewhere. Wait till they become 20. And, and, and then we'll try to work with them. I want to tell you, parents, grandparents, your teens can be ready. It's not just that they can be ready. They need to be ready. They need to be ready. And it should be the thing that as we look to the next generation that are going to have kids, we should, as those little babies come, to be able to, as older parents, to say, this is an important deal. How are you going to raise your kid? Well, we're really going to... No, no, no. I'm not talking about the mechanics of it. I'm talking about the priorities of it. Are you going to raise your kid at church? Are are you going to uh, honor the scripture in your home? Are you as parents going to try to model that in grace, right? Parents, it's always got to be in grace, right? Perfect parents don't exist. Parents in need of grace. Now that's a model. That's a model. But that's how you get them ready. Teens can be ready and should be ready for whatever happens. Captivity and anything less than that. And lastly, I'd say this. Last thing to remember as we close our time is to remember that our enemy, this world, those who are against the church, against the haters of Christ, they're going to try to change you. They're going to try to change you. Their desire is that they would be just like you. 
you would be the same. I, I think about this, I, you know, I, in Romans chapter 12, it, it says, do not be conformed to this world. And uh, there was a, um, I always forget the word for it, the paraphrase of the Bible, the Phillips uh, paraphrase is old. You know, I don't know when they did it. it was, my parents had a copy of it. But if you look that up, most translations have some form of conform. But it, but it says in there, it says, the world tries to squeeze you into its mold. Squeeze you into its mold. And I want to tell you that that's the picture of this culture, our nation, this world, the the people who are really smart and really rich who are meeting in Europe right now, talking about the next steps for our world, what they're going to do to us. They have a desire. And it's not to take care of people. It's to squeeze you into its, their mold. They have a desire. And beyond all this, the enemy. But I want to tell you that um, we've already been squeezed. We've already been shaped. As God's people, we are continuing to be shaped by the word of God, the spirit of God, as we walk in the spirit, that that Christ is in us, that he's changed us. And we don't need any fixing. We don't need any changing. We're godless people. And so this picture for us is to remember that we're not to get in step with this world. We're not to bow to the pressure. We're to already have been changed by what God has done. It's interesting to me that Daniel's in the Old Testament. We have so much more revelation than Daniel did. We, we know about Jesus. We know who he was. We know the miracles that he did and the teachings. We know, know about his sinless life. We know about the, the cross that he went to. He died and he rose again. We know about that. And so we have so much more. And so I want to encourage you as God's people, believing in the cross, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, believing in the gospel, that we would now live for him now as Daniel did in the Old Testament. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the blessing of hearing your word. God, may it strengthen us and may we, um, as we look at Daniel, as young man and what he did at such an early age, May we, wherever we are in life, gain courage from that. And, and he didn't have all the answers, uh, not before, not after, but uh, he knew who his God was. And may we cling to you as well, uh, not being pressured, even if it's the king of Babylon. God, thank you for this time. Do your work in your church. Strengthen us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen.